Welcome to Eureka Street Crypto. This is my anti-professional crypto channel. I'm just a barely sane dude who fell down the cryptocurrency rabbit hole. This channel is my fumbling attempt to communicate myself outside my own head about my journey in the crypto space. It is basically my brain dump. None of this is actual financial advice. Good morning, everybody. I'm Eureka John, and you're at Eureka Street Crypto, broadcasting live from Leander, Texas. It is 6.16 in the morning on April 15th, 2022, tax day. Uh, and uh, it is um, episode 400 and... Shoot, it's episode... Yesterday was episode 446. It is episode 447, so let me go ahead and change that on the screen. Those of you watching. Um, so you can watch on YouTube, or you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, all that crap. And um, yeah, this is my morning show, my brain dump, and it still says Thursday. Let me change this Thursday over to Friday. Today is Good Friday. I hope you're having a good Friday so far. Um, it is... A uh, holiday for me for work because my job celebrates Good Friday and Easter <clears throat> because it is well it's not a Christian based organization it's just a factory but the owners um, you know decided to celebrate Good Friday which I'm thankful for and uh, um, so let's see here the cat's too busy trying to get in that door again what do you want in here for cat why do you want to come in here it's just sitting there just rattling the door you know, just like, how does that cat have that much strength first of all that's just man i don't know cats are weird and i, I didn't vote for the cat like i said yesterday i was outvoted by three girls in the house and um yeah sometimes it happens Okay, so uh, episode 447, it is Friday, it is Good Friday, it is tax day. Um, yeah, I already did my taxes, and um, you know, I, I don't make a lot of money, so I got a really good tax return back, but then, you know, the government came in, I sent in my tax return form, and uh, you know, they're like, yeah, we'll go ahead and just take four-fifths of that because of the child tax credit uh, airdrops that I got that I didn't ask for. Uh, so, yeah. Yep. Oh, well, it is what it is, man. Yeah, I was surprised I got anything back after you know like i mean they asked me if i had any cryptocurrency and i said yes i have cryptocurrency i haven't really you know done a whole lot with it except just kind of dollar cost average so and there really was no other questions besides it so i don't know man i mean i have my real job and most of the tax stuff is paid in there um i mean if they ask i'll try to supply them with as much information as i can but right now i don't really know what else to do um you know it's, it's not like i'm a trader and, and i didn't really cash out tons of profits so I don't know. We'll find out. Um, but uh, yeah, so far, so good. Um, they went through and looked at everything and they you know, approved my tax return. And you know, after they took out four fifths of it because of the child tax credit uh, care, child care airdrop thing that they've been doing. And uh, yeah, <laughs> whatever, man, whatever. At this point, I'm nothing surprises me. I'm just kind of just like rolling with the punches, you know? Um, anyway, so let's go over here to CoinGecko and let's see what's happening. What's happening? Let's say. 
All right, so let me pull up the old coin gecko. Oh, why does it look like this? I okay. I've had everything all looking pretty, and then uh, my my uh, software crashed on me. Then I opened it up and just decided to go live, and here's what I get. So yeah, that's what happens. Yeah. All right, so coin gecko. Let's um, get this looking all pretty on the screen for you. Sorry for the you audio listeners. Okay. All right, so. Um, Bitcoin sitting at 40,300. Well, let me just go ahead and refresh this page, you know, because you never know, you know, it could just jump up by $10,000 in the matter of an instant. Okay, but it didn't this time. Okay, so it, um, so Bitcoin is sitting at $40,358.53. Um, so yeah, everything's sitting pretty low because yesterday was a pretty big dip and a lot and, and you know, most cryptocurrencies. Ethereum is at $3,037.18. Um, you know, all this stuff is enough to make the, you know, somebody who's used to the stock market's butthole pucker, you know, the way that cryptocurrency just kind of jumps around and is volatile and, you know, like, oh, well, we can't get into that market. It's too volatile. You know, yeah, it is. You know, that's what's make it fun, man. You know, like, don't put in more money than you can afford to lose. It's the golden rule of, you know, investing in general, period. You know, so... <laughs> yeah. uh, all right, so XRP is at 78 cents. Solana is at $102.11. Uh, Cardano is at 95 cents. Terra is 81.92. Avalanche is 78.24. Uh, all of it's down in the red um, over the past week, that is. And um, except XRP is up 7.8% over the past 24 hours. Um, I don't know why. The Doge. Okay. I don't know if you've seen all over the news, you know, Elon Musk bought like a, a huge portion of the shares of Twitter and then he um, declined being a part of the board of Twitter and uh, probably because they, he didn't want to go where he wasn't wanted, you know, uh, <laughs> and everybody's, you know, a, a lot of people, I guess, on the left are worried that he's going to, you know, take over the platform and allow all this free speech on there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, in that he might just outright buy Twitter, you know, and I think that would be cool. I mean, Elon, I, regardless of what some people think about, I think he's he's a pioneer. He's a renegade. He's he's a maverick. He's he's you know just kind of like you know he, he's got fu money and he's you know he's just trying things out, man. You know, and I've kind of you know in my own little way follow along the same spirit. I just like to try things out and see what happens, and if it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just all here for the fun. I'm here for the party, man. That's it. 
So yeah, I don't, I don't care whether Twitter, you know, succeeds or tanks. You know, I mean, I do have a couple shares of Twitter stock, but uh, you know, it really does not matter to me. Uh, I just want to see what'll happen. I mean, well, okay. So already Twitter has implemented Bitcoin. Jack Dorsey's real bullish on Bitcoin. He's a Bitcoin head, and uh, uh, although I don't think he quite, I don't know, um, but uh, yeah. And then Elon Musk loves that Dogecoin, and I don't know if he loves Dogecoin because he actually loves Dogecoin or if he's like uh, kind of just trolling everybody with Dogecoin, the fact that it's a useless meme coin and the fact that it would be funny to him to put Dogecoin as a currency and a tipping mechanism and everything like that on Twitter and to install it as part of the Twitter operations and then you know, also have Bitcoin on there as well. And I mean, that would be like the biggest troll, period, trolling operation on just the wider general public and it would drive so many people absolutely insane. So, <laughs> hey man, bottoms up, dude. You know, my kombucha tea, let's, 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 let's do it, man. Let's put, let's put Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey in charge of Twitter and see where it goes. Crypto Twitter would certainly get a laugh out of it. That's for sure. Uh, anyway, um, yesterday I was talking about Celsius and how Celsius had, you know, basically kowtowed to the regulators and um, they, as of April 15th, I believe. Yeah. Today um, they are making it to where if you are not an accredited investor, then you cannot receive the interest payments and uh, you know, do I, I don't know about lending. I think uh, I read the article yesterday, and it's already just kind of gone in one ear and out the other ear. Um, but you can't do a lot of functions on Celsius. You can only just swap and then keep your money on there, and that's it. That's not a whole lot um, for U.S. investors. You know, um, so basically, I pulled all my money out of Celsius like a week ago, and already in fears of this entire cyber, you know, impending cyber attack and everything like that i don't want my stuff on a centralized exchange it's a good idea to take your stuff off of centralized exchanges put it in a in a, you know, a hardware cold wallet or at least just like an online wallet that you have the seed phrase to you know so make sure you hold on to that seed phrase don't give it to anybody and um yeah, so I have, you know, my Bitcoin and cold storage and other stuff and, you know, in, in wallets online that I hold the seed phrase to, decentralized wallets. I took everything out of all centralized places. And, um, yeah, I did it because of the impending cyber attack. But now it just so happens that Celsius as well is now only allowing accredited investors. And what an accredited investor means is uh, that you have to have, and I believe in the U.S., like something like $250,000 worth of um, money in your bank, and you have to have a million dollars worth of assets, uh, and only then are you allowed to trade. And I found out about accredited investing in very early 2020, Whenever I was studying up on XRP and stuff like that, like a lot of people do when they first get into crypto because XRP was at, at that time between 2018 and, and 2020. And I was just about ready to sell off my XRP, whatever, because I ended up started thinking it was lame. Um, and uh, um, there was something called shares post. 
And this was right when uh, Ripple was about to go public, but you could jump in and buy shares of Ripple before it would go public um, through something called SharesPost. And you could do this with a lot of companies. It wasn't just Ripple. And, um, you know, I went down through SharesPost and I was looking at it. And uh, hold on, let me see if I can pull up the website. SharesPost. All right. Whoops. And then I'll just do stocks. All right, shares post stocks. And I was looking at the website, and there were a bunch of companies in there that I would have liked to invest in because of the fact that I study and research so much. And there are a lot of people who are not accredited investors and don't have all those assets that do their due diligence and really, um, you know, would love to be able to buy this pre-IPO initial public offering stuff and to be able to... Um, you know, invest in some of these things. However, I put in my, um, I, I signed up to shares post and, uh, um, I got an email back saying, you know, wanting my information, wanting my financials to make sure that I'm an accredited investor. And I was like, what the hell is this? And then I, I read the requirements and I was like, dude, I do not have 250,000 spare dollars just sitting in my bank account. This is absolutely ridiculous. And so I wasn't able to partake in that activity. You know, they think anybody that doesn't have, you know, that, that type of money is not, you know, yeah, it, it's just total institutional discrimination and segregation based on financial, um, you know, what, what you have, you know, and that, that's what a lot of people are fighting over all these other issues, you know, about, you know, what your skin color is, who you bone at night and stuff like that. And really the real discrimination happens at the institutional financial level. And that's how, you know, where a lot of this stuff happens and, and nobody sees that, you know, they, they're just too focused on what the media is telling us to focus on. So enough and, and this rant, um, about that. But yeah, so I'm not an accredited investor. I couldn't do the Celsius thing. And then it led me, you know, to think about some of these other podcasts that I've been listening to. And, um, it made me think about this podcast here. Where was it here? Uh, this podcast right here with Jamie Catherwood on the Investors Podcast Network. And we started talking about Tulip Mania. Uh, he started talking about bucket shops, um, other types of bubbles and stuff like that that happen. And a lot of these bubbles happen whenever, you know, the lower classes, the people without all the financial, you know, um, stability and foundation to sit on and nestle their butts in. In, you know, and, and, and yeah, they, they just, they sometimes set up things and do things a little irrationally out of, in a way, sort of desperation. Everybody wants to get rich. Right. And, um, anyway, he talks about how the tulip mania didn't exist and I will go there in a second. Okay. But I want to talk first about bucket shops. Okay. So suddenly I'm basically being kicked out of all the benefit and the reason why I signed up for Celsius network. So, um, you know, it puts me back into DeFi and a lot of DeFi stuff, you know, and a lot of exchanges and a lot of things you'll find in the cryptocurrency world are a little, you know, they can be a little scammy and shady and risky, highly risky. A lot of stuff is, is, is major leverage, which means, um, that you are basically, um, 
putting in money and you're betting like a thousand times out, you know, and you're making a large bet and you could lose everything if that if something were to go below your call on that. And um, yeah, it's leveraged trading is, is very dangerous and risky and you could lose everything you put in. And a lot of people you know, think that they can handle the market and predict the market and time the market and they can't. Anyway, so I they started talking about bucket houses, and um, I went in, and the whole concept of bucket bucket shops really intrigues me. So let's go take a look at bucket shops. Um, and I went on to well. Let, there's a Wikipedia definition and there's an Investopedia definition. So let me let me just go in first into this Investopedia definition. All right, so what is a bucket shop? A bucket shop is a brokerage firm that engages in unethical business practices. Historically, the term was used to refer to terms that allowed their customers to gamble on stock prices, often using dangerously high levels of leverage. Most More recently, the term is associated with firms that practice bucketing, which involves profiting from a client's trade without their knowledge all right so uh, bucket shops were set up in the 1870s and um, they were basically houses that, this is right around the time when the telegraph machine was invented and supposedly they had this feed and this telegraph machine and they could see what was going on in the stock market and then cities all over the nation would all gather in these bucket houses and the bucket shops and they would bet on the stock market activity. Now, when people were buying these stocks, they weren't actually buying the stocks. They were just buying a little piece of paper that the bucket shop said that you, that you had the stock, even though everybody knew that you didn't actually have the stock. But the, what they were doing is they were abstracting the prices from the actual stock market and the actual stocks, and they were doing basically paper trading, you know? And paper trading is whenever you don't actually buy the stock, you just buy the, you know, you, you just are sitting here tracking the price of it. And it's always good if you're trying to learn how to use the, do the stock market or the crypto market for that matter to do some paper trading for a while to kind of get used to the rhythm and the activity and the flow and everything like that and a lot of the terminology and stuff like that. So bucket shops are brokerage firms that have clear and unmitigated conflicts of interest with their customers. So, I mean, Investopedia just comes out it comes outright and just is like flailing on how terrible it is, where Wikipedia is a little more objective. Uh, traditionally, they functioned as gambling houses in which customers were encouraged to take on substantial leverage in order to speculate on future stock prices. When customers occasionally profited on their trades, the gains would be advertised by the bucket shop to recruit new customers. In most instances, however, the customers would face larger, even total losses, as with all gambling activities. The bucket shops benefited from their customers' losses. Bucket shops became common in the late 1800s when the spread of a new communications technology such as the telegraph made it possible to speculate on stock prices in a timely manner. Bucket shops emerged to let clients gamble on stock prices in the same way that they might otherwise bet on racehorses. Um, so, well, they say one possible explanation for the origins of the name bucket shop has to do with another technique used by these firms to profit off their clients. After executing their trades throughout the day, bucket shops would sometimes throw the trade tickets into a bucket. After mixing the tickets together, 
together. The firm would then allocate winning and losing trades to specific clients based on their assessment on, of which clients would likely generate the most profit for the firm. The practice is, of course, prohibited by today's legal and regulatory standards. I don't really like Investopedia's take on this. Um, it's very biased, and it, it just, you know, yeah, and it's, I don't think it's correct. Wikipedia did, actually did a better job here. Um, a bucket shop is a business that allows gambling based on the prices of stocks or commodities. In 1906, U.S. Supreme Court ruling defined a bucket shop as an established nominally, uh, an establishment nominally for the transaction, nominally is the keyword, for the transaction of a stock exchange business or similar character, but really for the registration of bets or wages, usually for small amounts. On the rise or fall of prices of stocks, grain, oil, etc., there being no transfer or delivery of the stock or commodities dealt in. A person who engages in the practice is referred to as a bucketeer, and the practice is sometimes referred to as bucketeering. All right. Uh, bucket shops were found in many large cities, um, but from the mid 1800s, but the practice was eventually ruled illegal and largely disappeared by the 1920s. Okay, so. Um, according to the New York Times in 1958, a bucket shop is an office with facilities for making bets in the form of orders or options based on current exchange prices of securities or commodities, but without any actual buying or selling of the property. Bucket shops are sometimes mentioned together with boiler rooms as examples of securities fraud, but they are distinct types. While a boiler room operator seeks to broker actual security trades, the bucket shop's emphasis is on creating the appearance of brokerage brokerage activity where none actually exists. Um, the, the origin of the term bucket shop has nothing to do with financial markets. Okay, so this is, I think this is pretty interesting. Um, as the term originated from England in the 1820s, during the 1820s, street children drained beer kegs, which were discarded from public houses. It sounds a lot like me in high school. <laughs> the street children would take the kegs to an abandoned shop and drink them, and then the practice became known as bucketing. At the, and the location at which they drained the kegs and became known as the bucket shop uh for me it would be under the bridge at a highway 59 you know you take the keg down there all the kids down there drinking off that keg uh, until the cops show up now, so anyway the idea was tr transferred to illegal brokers because they too sought uh, pro to profit from sources too small or too unreliable for legitimate pro brokers to handle, the term bucket shop came to apply to disreputable sham brokerages that did not execute trades. Sounds a lot like um, kind of shady DeFi derivative exchanges. <laughs> I mean, I know synthetics is not shady, but I mean, really, they're derivatives. I mean, the whole thing, the whole idea of the real estate crash and everything like that in 2008 was focused around derivatives. Derivatives are whenever you are uh, buying buying something that is pegged to the price of something else, you know, and that tracks that price. It's a derivative of that. And it's basically what they're doing here. They're just not doing it with the big money approval, you know? And so the, my point was about the whole Celsius thing and then how I suddenly have to be an accredited investor, you know, to, to partake in some of this activity and all this regulatory stuff and this institutional um, systematic discrimination set up according to people's finances forces people to kind of who want, you know, who, who want to do well. And if, if you want to get rich right now in the crypto market, you're not going to do it with Bitcoin right now. You know, if, if you're not coming from, you know, already established well-off financial means you're gonna have to be a degen 
You know, you're going to have to go in and learn some of this risky DeFi technology, you know, maybe do a couple (laughs) stupid, stupidly, you know, crazy trades and one might work out well. And it's kind of a lot of these DeFi stuff, especially on things like Binance are kind of the online version of bucket shops, you know, and, uh, I've partake. I'm. I. I do. I partake in some kind of bucket shop like activity <laughs> online, and there is a lot of scammy behavior and a lot of crap that goes on in these bucket shops that went on these bucket shops that that were not in favor of you know the person who would go to these bucket shops trying to get rich and a lot of the people running these bucket shops would take advantage of it um so bucket shops specializing in stocks and commodity futures appeared in the united states in the 1870s corresponding to the innovation of stock tickers upon which they depend depended and i think about um, oracles in crypto um, Chainlink is an oracle. Band protocol is an oracle. You know, and those are basically little snippets of code and pieces of software and protocols that allow information to be funneled from the real world, such as real-time stock prices, real-time you know crypto and things like that from exchanges to be or, or from you know sources to be funneled to exchanges and to be funneled to to things like CoinGecko, like I showed you the prices this morning. CoinGecko uses Oracle. Chain link oracles in order to get real time updated pricing information, you know, and yeah, that's that's kind of what the the telegraph machine was during that time, and the stock tickers were those were the you know, the telegraph machine was the oracle that that transmitted the stock ticker information all over the United States to every single bucket shop around there. So in 1889, the New York Stock Exchange addressed the ticker trouble, you know, these bucket shops operating on an intraday stock prices movement, and they attempted to suppress these bucket shops. So think about this. A lot of times when we think about history, we're just reading it back to back, you know, 1870, this happened, 1880, this happened, 1889, this happened, and we don't think about the amount of time and actual years that that is. So from the bucket shops started appearing around the 1870s, okay? And finally, in 1889, the New York Stock Exchange tried to address what they saw as a terrible issue and that took that was 19 years that that these about 20 years that these bucket shops were in existence with no hindrance whatsoever it was just going on it was part of life you know when something's going on for 20 years it basically becomes a part of life right and so um, they attempted to suppress these bucket shops by disconnecting telegraph stock tickers um, this embargo instead provided pr- proved a severe hindrance to the exchange's wealthy local clients as well as the exchange's brokers in other cities across the country. It had also the surprising effect of favoring competing exchanges and was abandoned within days. Yeah, so whenever you do try to regulate and use the heavy hand to regulate down on people, a lot of times it'll come back and kick you in the butt, right? And um, that's what happened to the New York Stock Exchange. And, uh, you know, people are going to make things happen, whether or not it's a Accredited or unaccredited, they're going to have it happen. But what was happening is uh, there was some market manipulation happening, of course. So, you know, there were a lot of margin calls in there and there were a lot, a lot of high risk margin calls. And what, what what the bucket shop operators were finding out was um, they could they when they would see patterns of, of their customers all starting to make margin, then we're, we're starting to make bets on certain types of stock and they were highly leveraged out and things like that. They knew that a slight little downtick 
and the price of the stock could cause them, the, their customer, to lose. And then what happens when they lose that money? All that money goes to the operators of the bucket shops. So whenever they would see a lot of customers or, or a customer with a ton of money come in and bet on a specific stock, well, they would do what was called front-running, okay? And so front-running exists right now, and it's now it's called minor extracted value, and they're trying to, uh, to rebrand it as minor... Uh, expected value or something like that. I, I don't know. But basically, miners are able to see on the blockchain um, whenever a transaction is coming through. And um, what they can do is they can jump ahead by paying a higher gas fee, I believe, and then buy a lot of something. And then it will drive the price uh, upwards or they'll sell a lot of something. It'll drive the price downwards or something or another and it, it, enough to manipulate the price. Then they'll come in behind the, this unknowing person and then you know buy or sell as well. And so what they will do is they will arbitrage on the difference on that price, but they've effectively manipulated the market. And that's basically what these bucket shop operators were doing as well is they would see a lot of trades come in the order books for a specific stock and all these people may have been leveraged out so if something if the if that price were to have dipped just a couple points or whatever then all those people would lose all their money and their money would go to the bucket shop operators so um they would go and actually actually buy a lot of these stocks or actually sell a lot of these stocks on the New York Stock Exchange, then the price would drop or you know raise according to whatever type of, of uh, position was there. And then the people who were in the bucket shops would you know the, the the bucket shop operators be ah, it's not us i mean look it's coming from new york you know like we can't help it you, you just lost the bet and then so all the money would go to the bucket shop operators and they were constantly doing this and so yeah that market manipulation ended up basically shutting them down um so yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it, it, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, so it's pretty bad, you know, and so there is a, you know, I talked to me yesterday, there, there's a reason for regulation. Um, there is a lot of scammy and market manipulation activity that happens. But whenever they start regulating good things like Celsius network, and then start locking out all these people for not being accredited investors and not having $250,000 in their bank account, then it drives people to, because of their systemic discrimination. It drives people to this bucket shop like activity, you know, and they, they're always doing these little things to manipulate and to make sure that we stay in our place and that we are not able to sit at the same table with the wealthy. Um, so, and then, but the funny thing is, is, you know, PayPal, for instance, they are running what is kind of a bucket shop operation. You know, you can, okay, say for instance, and I found this on, on Reddit as well about Robinhood. Robert, and Robinhood's kind of a bucket shop operation. You know, um, here it says here, Robinhood is a dirty bucket shop. They claim to offer cryptocurrency, but don't support deposits and withdrawals. Yesterday, they, they locked users from trade GME just because they can. All right. So, and this was written a year ago. Um, 
my mom had some money and some Bitcoin and some Ethereum on PayPal. She was not allowed to withdraw it. And as far as I'm concerned, PayPal never bought the Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, you're allowed to put your money into PayPal. You're allowed to buy stocks and sell stocks or, or buy crypto and sell crypto. And I think some stocks, you're allowed to buy Bitcoin and, and sell Bitcoin. But as long as it's in and out of the U.S. dollar and as long as it's on the PayPal platform. So you never get the keys to that crypto. You're never allowed to withdraw the actual Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, And you're never allowed to have actual physical possession of it. It, you know, like the keys to your crypto. And so as far as I'm concerned, you've never bought that Bitcoin or Ethereum and they are basically a bucket shop. You know, you're buying what just you're buying the bucket shop piece of paper, the PayPal ticker, you know, the PayPal ticker paper, you know, and you're, you're buying that and you're holding on to that and you're just basically speculating on the price and that's it. And if you want that Bitcoin, well, tough titties, you know, yeah, you, you, you're not getting it. If you want to cash out, you can cash out at the new price. Sure. You know, but yeah, I mean, they might not be front running and manipulating the market. Maybe they are, but you know, um, you you don't own that Bitcoin. So it's basically no better than a bucket shop. And then Robinhood is the same way. Robinhood is a dirty bucket shop. Any website service that allows the trading of crypto but no deposits or withdrawals equals immediate scam warning. Withdrawals have been promised. It's coming. Yeah, they always say that for two years in Robinhood, but it's not yet there. Today, they stopped users mostly retail from trading GME and the price crashed from 500 to 300. But large institutions can still buy on their institutional brokers now at a much cheaper price. Robinhood has effectively manipulated the market by locking its customers out and aiding the institutions who need to buy GME to cover their shorts. So you see what happens, this type of aristocracy, snobbery behavior, this institutional privilege and all that stuff and institutional systematic discrimination it perpetuates this bucket shop type of activity and it perpetuates things like tulip bubbles you know like and that the funny thing is is i okay look um tulip bubbles you know uh, look at how many i just googled tulip bubbles never existed and i couldn't find a single uh, video about really how tulip bubbles never existed. Um, there, there was a tulip bubble of sorts. Okay. And I'll explain that here in a second, but you know, a lot of people out of kind of desperation, wanting to become rich, um, started to perpetuate this whole activity of a tulip bubble. But look how many videos there are about this tulip bubble and explaining what happened and all that stuff. Uh, it's just, it just goes on and on and on and on about the tulip bubble and everybody explaining tulips. And a lot of people compared the Bitcoin and crypto bubble that, that, you know, they say we're in. Um, I mean, it's been 12 years now. Tulip bubble lasted, what, six months, you know, <laughs> and uh, yeah, they, they compare Bitcoin to a tulip bubble. Yeah. A lot of people I've heard compare IoT, Internet of Things devices, to tulip bubbles. You know, it's not a bubble like IoT is not going anywhere. <laughs> you know, I, it, between IoT, um, uh, you know, cryptocurrency, um, AI, RFID, you know, all that stuff is an entire new paradigm and new system decentralized id that's all moving in and it is not a bubble folks um so all right so anyway so let's look at the i found this article here okay first of all this the same podcast um 
right here on uh, I would highly recommend I'm going to link this podcast that did you guys listen to the stock market bubbles with Jamie Catherwood um, the investors podcast network uh, on and this is episode number 427 on March 3rd it is really good and he talks about the tulip mania and um, there's an a book that was written by uh, let's see here um, where, where is this book here Oh, yeah, University of Chicago Press by Anne Goldgar, Tulip Mania, Money, Honor, and Knowledge in the Dutch Golden Age. And uh, she explains the entire tulip bubble and how there it really wasn't as all these videos that I just showed you explained. Um, yeah, there's tons of videos explaining the tulip bubble like it, it actually happened. It did not actually happen that way. And there's an entire book on here. And he in this, um, this, uh, you, this uh, podcast will explain that for you. I'll play a little snippet of it here. There's no questioning that people were buying and selling tulips and there were probably some ridiculous prices paid for them. But one of the, there's kind of three issues. So the first issue is that mainly people today get their idea of tulip mania from Charles McKay's Extraordinary Delusions and Madness of Crowds or whatever the title is. Um, and the problem with his research was that it was based on largely the work of a um, German German writer in the 18th century. And that German writer had gotten most of his kind of source material from these pamphlets and circulars that were kind of floating around at the time of the Dutch tulip mania. And they were all satirical. And so Okay, so yeah, what he was saying is the whole idea of the tulip mania that um, Charles McKay wrote about, which is the source material that all these videos are getting it from. You know, and, and he explained people losing everything that people were paying. You know, what's worth a house for all that stuff, and and all that stuff. Well, Anne Golgar went back and did the actual research of Charles McKay, and then what his sources were. And Charles McKay's sources were a German writer, and the German writer's sources were just a bunch of pamphlets, satirical pamphlets. It would be like using the onion or Babylon B as actual source material and just total exaggeration, um, total humor. And um, I saw from another source writing about this as well that the Calvinist churches in, um, in, in, uh, in, in the Netherlands at the time um, were also writing against it and they were you know, basically taking a moral approach and it was, all that stuff was controlled by the arist aristocracy. They did not want um, you know, the average person, the citoyen, um, to be able to have money and to be able to sit at the same table with them because they did not like all this new money coming in. They thought the new money was tacky. You know, you know, there were the, the landowners and then there were the merchant class. And the Dutch at the time were uh, this whole new class of wealth brought in from you know, the whole uh, you know, the Dutch empire and you know, the merchant class were moving up and they were kind of supplanting in that region the established landowning uh, nobility. 
And so a lot of, around that time, you know, this is when the tulip mania was happening. The tulips were originally uh, from, I guess, around the Himalayas area, around Nepal. And then they were um, taken to the Ottoman Empire and in Turkey. Uh, I can't remember the name of that king, but he had a huge tulip garden. And so they were basically imported. And you had societal status if you were able to um, you know, have imported exotic goods and things like that. So a tulip was exotic and they were they were kind of like nfts i mean you didn't know what you were getting out of your bulb until it actually bloomed and then if you bloomed and you got some cool color you know like solid colors were cool yeah you know you had a tulip but if you got a weird one and there was this little virus that was inside the plant sometimes and infected plants would create these weird colored patterns and stuff like that and if you got one of those those were definitely worth more so there was like a value for the tulips i'm not saying that tulips never had any type of extravagant value but what i'm saying is that the whole idea of you know them having tulip fevers and people sitting here you know doing all these like crazy futures contracts and everything like that and losing their entire wealth and betting their houses i mean and that this was you know permeated into all the lower classes from the chimney sweeps to on up you know like that that's not really what happened you know it wasn't that crazy and um it it was maybe a tiny blip on the map but charles McKay when he wrote that book obviously he's a great storyteller and you know the German author that he used as his source you know sat there and and took for fact all the stuff that was in the satirical pamphlets at the time and from the tracks of the Calvinist um, church at the time you know and yeah those were exaggerations it was propaganda used by the wealthy class to sit there and deter people from from this type of activity because people were basically doing uh, derivatives contracts and futures contracts in basically what amounted to bucket shops, pre-bucket shops in in uh, the Netherlands, you know, betting on these contracts with, with, uh, with the tulips, right? And so once again, the establishment and the aristocracy was trying to use propaganda and to use fear, uncertainty, and doubt and FUD and then regulation to, to be able to try to keep people from you know, basically becoming wealthy. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, and so let's see here. According to popular, popular legend, the tul I've made some highlights. The tulip craze took hold of all levels of Dutch society in the 1630s. The rage among the Dutch to possess them was so great that the ordinary industry of the country was neglected and the population, even to its lowest dregs, embarked in the tulip, tulip trade. Roach wrote Scottish journalist Charles Mackay in his popular 1841 work, Popular Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds was the name of the book. Um, that did not actually happen. According to, the, to this narrative, everyone from the wealthiest merchants to the poorest chimney sweeps jumped into the tulip fray, buying bulbs at high prices and selling them for even more. Companies formed just to deal with the tulip trade, which reached a fever pitch in late 1836, but by February 1637, uh, 1636, but by February 16 
1937, the bottom fell out of the market. More and more people defaulted on their agreement to buy tulips at the prices they promised, and the traders who had already made their payments were left in debt or bankrupted. At least that's what's been claimed. Um, and, and in fact, there weren't many people that were involved in the economic repercussions, and the economic repercussions were pretty minor. Um, Goldgar says, I couldn't find anyone, anybody that went bankrupt. If there had been really a wholesale destruction of the economy, as the myth suggests, that would have been a much harder thing to face. It's not to say that everything about the story is wrong. Merchants really did engage in a frantic tulip trade, and they they paid incredibly high prices for some bulbs. And when a number of buyers announced they couldn't pay the high price previously agreed upon, the market did fall apart and cause a small crisis, the tulip market, but only because it undermined social expectations. In this case, it is very difficult to deal with the fact that almost all of your relationships are based on trust, and people said, I don't care that I said I'm going to buy this thing. I don't want it anymore, and I'm not going to pay for it. There was really no mechanism to make people pay because the courts were unwilling to get involved. And back then, you got to think about it. You know, your word is your honor. Your honor is your 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 title, and your title is your place in society and your claim to ownership on property in life. You know, so people to going back on their word at that time was a lot more significant than I guess something now, you know, but the, okay. But the trade didn't affect all levels of society. It didn't cause the collapse of industry in Amsterdam and elsewhere as Garber, the economist writes, while the lack of data provides a solid conclusion, the results of the study indicate that the bulb speculation was not obvious madness. So if tulip, tulip mania wasn't actually a calamity, why was it made out to be one? We have Techie Christian moralists to blame for that. Uh, so um, the Smithsonian blames the Christians. Um, that the, uh, but uh, the other guy, Jamie Catherwood, he says, you know, it's it's the satiricists as well. Um, I, I don't know why the, the Smithsonian would be you know, only pointing the, the finger at the Christians, but, uh, you know, it's, it's people writing satirical art, articles as well. But anyway, they say we have Techy Christian moralists to blame for that. With great wealth comes great anxiety, or as histor historian Simon Schama writes in The Embarrassment of Riches, an interpretation of Dutch culture in the Golden Age, uh, he writes, the prodigious quality of their success went to their heads, but it also made them a bit queasy. All the outlandish stories of economic ruin of an innocent sailor thrown into prison for eating a tulip bulb, of chimney sweeps wading into the market in hopes of striking it rich, those come from propaganda pamphlets published by Dutch Calvinists worried that the tulip-propelled consumerism boom would lead to societal de decay. Their insistence that such great wealth was ungodly has even stayed to us this day. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, so it, it has a lot of religious connotations, but a lot of the people that were the most religious in that society were also the most wealthy, and they can't be having the wealthy, uh, the, the new the new money moving on up, moving on up. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I don't, this is kind of a ranty episode, but uh, it's just, you know, this whole idea of accredited investors and how, you know, regulation tends to kind of force people to sketchy and criminal activity. And I'm not saying that criminals are blameless, you know, uh, but there is systematic structures in place to make sure that, like, 
I don't know, man. It's like uh, recidivism, I think, is the term when people who go to prison always end up going back to prison, prison because that's, in a way, the place where they actually finally feel secured and cared for. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so they, they become perpetual criminals, and uh, the system has made them that way. And are we, as you know, non-wealthy people, kind of cursed to to engage in this degen financial activity, you know, because we have no other choice because we're not accredited investors. I don't know. You know, it's just morning ponderings at six sixteen to seven o two a.m. I've been going on that long, forty six minutes. I I don't know, man. I, I, yeah, I, I sit here and have this entire conversation with myself. You know, this is my morning meditation, <laughs> and you're just you're just like voyeuristically listening and watching. All right, man. Well, I will, um, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to interview several people from the Cafe DAO. And it's a new DAO starting up in the Seattle area in which they are um, opening up coffee shops based on DAOs. So it's interesting how uh, coffee has really tended to be the starting point for a lot of new and different business tactics. And a lot of times they start with coffee shops. So we'll talk to these people tomorrow and see what they have to say about it. All right. Uh, for that being said, let me go ahead and uh, let me go ahead and uh, get on out of here. I'm going to start the day and um, it'll be a good Friday. It will be a good Friday for sure. Yeah. Even if it's not a good Friday, it's good Friday. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk to you guys tomorrow. Thank you for making it to the end of this program. If you actually like this content, give a thumbs up. And if you want to hear more, just hit the subscribe button. I'm available on YouTube, Odyssey, and BitChute, and on all the major podcasting platforms in audio version. Spotify specifically. If you would like to follow and leave a review, that would help a lot. I am also available on Twitter at EurekaJohn1. That's E-U-R-E-K-A John, J-O-H-N, and the number one. My DMs are always open. Feel free to shoot me a message. Thanks again.